Today's episode of the NFL Show is brought to you by State Farm. When you need a game plan for protection, State Farm agents are here to help. With personalized service, agents are available to talk in person, over text, or through the State Farm app. So go with the one with coverage and agents you can count on. Find an agent in your neighborhood today. State Farm. Talk to an agent today. It's the Ringer NFL Show, part of the Ringer Podcast Network. I'm Kevin Clark. Joining me today, Danny Heifetz, Danny Kelly. We're talking Buffalo Bills, San Francisco 49ers, Dallas Cowboys, a lot of things, Kyler Murray. But first, I want to talk about where I am right now. I'm in Oakland, California. A couple hours ago, I was on the field standing in front of the black hole, and I saw the last ever black hole boo in Oakland. Derek Carr walked over there after they lost Gardner Minshew and the Jaguars, and he was loudly and emphatically booed. He said, what's new with this with this crowd? It was you know, kind of tongue-in-cheek. He understood what was going to happen when you go into the black hole after literally throwing a Hail Mary that bounces off somebody's face mask. This was not a good game. I will say this. I'd never actually been to Oakland. I walked around the parking lot. There's probably less than 10 parking lots in the NFL where you feel like you're having a big game atmosphere. You feel like something's actually going to happen. There's just too much regulation with tailgates. The most stadiums are are just too new. You know these stadiums. They host Super Bowls. There's a lot of glass everywhere. The sight lines are perfect. There's field suites. The Oakland is not that. It is a deeply crappy stadium. It has staircases that go to nowhere. It has dugouts all over the place, but it might be the last truly crappy stadium. I think that all new stadiums are alike and every bad stadium is different in their own way. And that's Oakland. And I I wanted to take in a game there because I feel like it's an underreported story. The Raiders had said goodbye for so long that no one was really ready to say goodbye on Sunday, week 15, two weeks before the end of the season in a very weird season. Okay. The the Raiders did not meet their expectations. Even the expectations set up for them in October when they were a playoff team. So I went there and I just wanted to see what it was like. And it was strange. Uh, As I said, the black hole did not take the loss very well. Fans stuck around for a long time. After the Raiders players left, pretty much one by one, there were fans. And not not a lot, maybe maybe 10, maybe a few more, started just jumping on the field and and getting arrested. They just wanted to get put in cuffs. I'm not really sure once one guy did it, they saw what happened. There was no open space. There were, there were no plays to be made out there. Guys would just jump on the field, and then they would take two steps, get tackled, and go to jail. That's what was, what was explained to me. And they did it anyway. They just wanted to see it. And I thought it was a, it was a strange sight, to be sure. Um, you know, This was 20, 30 minutes after the game. I was just hanging out and, and kind of watching how the black hole reacted. I mean, this is the one of the most famous fan bases, one of the most famous sections in, in football. And I'm just, just watching them do their thing for the last time. And I thought about sort of the human, the human um, cost, I guess you could say, of the LA saga, of the relocation saga. This is going to be the third team to, to, to leave in four years. And I think that there just hasn't been enough focus put on on the fans who are going to lose this. And, and with the Raiders, it's a little different. It's not like St. Louis. It's not even like the Chargers because I feel like the Raiders are viewed as having a national fan base that's going to travel to, to, to Las Vegas. And I understand that, especially the LA fans. They can just drive four hours. But I feel like there were tens of thousands of people in Oakland to whom the journey is over now. And that's that's just, they're not going to fly down to Las Vegas eight times a year. Uh, they're not going to have the same approach to it. And I think that Oakland was a really cool place to watch a football game, and that's over. 
And I just wanted to take it in. I, th- I thought it was a a very gloomy day. I don't think it was especially, um, I don't think Raiders fans covered themselves in glory exactly, except to say that it was passionate fan base. It will always be remembered as such. And I was I was glad to have seen it in, I guess you could say, all its glory on Sunday afternoon. You know, Jerry McDonald, the, the longtime Raiders writer, had a tweet earlier today that when the guy who checked his credential talked to him, he said that, there was a, he'd lost his second job in a year because he, I guess, checked tickets at the Warriors games as well. The Warriors stadium and the Raiders stadium right next to each other. Literally, they share an entrance at one point um, on on one side of the building. And I just think that there's, you know, again, like Oakland is an up and coming city. I'm I'm staying in it tonight. It's it's getting cooler. It is obviously in the Bay Area, which is one of the most you know lucrative markets in all of sports all of america it's just a weird thing the the la saga is the weirdest thing that has happened to football in the last decade when you start to read about it and all the different things and the fact that it was supposed to be the raiders and the chargers at one point people like jerry richardson supported that and then stan Kroenke went now it's up to six billion dollars with him i mean it is one of the strangest things that's why seth wickersham and don van nata's stories on it have been so good is that all of a sudden the san diego Chargers moved to la and they've sold twenty five thousand tickets they've undercut the psls for the los angeles rams who made the super bowl last year and can't seem to sell out their new stadium. I mean, it is an unbelievable saga. And this is the end result, which is football is over in Oakland. It's really sad. They go to Las Vegas. They go to a shiny new stadium. I understand there'll be nice fans there, but it'll be different. Football is losing something on Monday that it had on Sunday. It's the Oakland Raiders experience in the city of Oakland, in that stadium, in that parking lot. It wasn't perfect. They needed a new stadium. It was deeply crappy in some parts, but it was football. It was fun. I enjoyed it. The Oakland Raiders will be missed in a very specific way. All right. I want to talk about all the bad football I saw on Sunday, because first of all, there was a great window of games, especially the 1 PM game. I loved some of these games. We're going to get to them, but I'm starting to think about how many crappy teams there are and how many coaching opportunities there might be. And what has happened in the league in the past couple of years, since 2018 began, there have been 16 coaching changes, 16 coaching changes. And then you start to think about the people who were hired before 2018 who look like they're on their way out. Those are people like Jason Garrett, hired in 2010. Dan Quinn, 2015. Doug Marone, 2017. These types of guys. We could be looking at 20, perhaps, head coaches who have come into the league since the beginning of 2018. And then you think about the supply problem. I was actually talking to an owner this week And we were talking a little bit about how the game is changing and the coaches are not changing enough with it. There are a lot of young, smart coaches, but it's not, you know, even someone like the Sean McVay tree, that's not as analytically inclined as you would think. And so that's the kind of the David Tepper thing. Where does he go if he wants sort of a, 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 a really analytically driven coach? I don't know. Here's what I know. I know there's going to be more openings than ever. There were eight last year. Sean McVay's friends got a bunch of them. And now there's going to be more of them. 
And you just start to think, where are the good young coaches going to come from? Is it going to be a college hiring spree? Is that where the Matt Rules come from? Is that where the Urban Myers come from? Urban Meyer was in Washington on Sunday watching the game with Bruce Allen. I don't know why he would take that job. I think that the cover story there is he's watching Dwayne Haskins. Really, I think that you could look at it as he's driving up the price if Jerry Jones wants to make a run at that. Having said that, you have Lincoln Riley. That's something Brian Curtis and I talked about on the podcast on Thursday. That's probably the best option. This is a guy who just creates Heisman Trophy candidates or winners every single year. Year. And so that's the guy, if you're going to try to solve your quarterback, you go get Lincoln Riley. But what I think is going to happen is I think there's going to be a lot more openings than there are good coaches. And this has always been the case, but I think it's going to be heightened because of how hard it is in the modern era to be a good coach. It was much easier in 2000 or 2005 or 1995 when it was just Basically, you know, three offenses, everybody hired their friends, and it was really easy as long as you cared about work ethic and preparation to be an okay team. I, From talking to old timers, the vibe I get is you could get by like that in 1990. There was always rich cotites. There was always the kind of guy who went one in 15 that happened every couple of years. But the reason we're seeing more just absolute disaster head coaches is because it's really, really hard to win now because there's more schemes, because the innovation cycle has sped up. Because someone like Sean McVay can look like the most innovative coach in the history of football one year, and the next year, after a basically a, a, a destruction at the hands of Bill Belichick, everyone else like he's figured that out. The, the sport moves so quickly now that it is so hard to get the little edges. That's why it's amazing that Bill Belichick and Andy Reid keep winning these games. But from everybody I talk to in the league, it is actually harder to be a good head coach now than it ever has been. And so to find the head coach, that's good. When you have eight openings a year or seven openings a year, and you have 20 head coaching openings since the beginning of 2018, it's really an unprecedented time in the history of football. And I don't know what owners do because it's going to take a little while for the guys who have these quote unquote modern principles to get in there. And so you're going to be hiring 35, 40 year olds, whatever it is. And I just think that it's, it is harder than ever to find a coach. And this is why, listen, Detroit has to eventually make a move. Matt Patricia is a really bad coach. Cleveland's on the edge. Adam Gase, really bad coach. They've got to make a move. But I think that it's getting harder and harder to figure out who the good coaches are because there's more creativity on the top end. I just think that it's a good thing for the league, but it's a bad thing for franchises that have no idea what they're doing. And that those franchises are going to end up in the same cycle over and over and over again. And, you know, listen, it sucks to suck. Okay, now we bring in the ringers, Danny Heifetz, for stock up and stock down. There is no bigger stock up after week 15 than the Buffalo Bills, who have 10 wins for the first time since 1999. Danny Heifetz, what were you doing in 1999? Oh, man. Uh, learning to walk. Oh, come on. Something like that. You were you were 25 years old. Okay, so they had the <laughs> NFL's longest streak without double-digit wins. They have a resounding nice win over Duck Hodges and the Pittsburgh Steelers. On Sunday night, Sam Donsky, the former Ringer employee, had a great tweet. He said, it's not just clinching the playoffs. It's a big deal. It's that the Bills have graduated from the in-the-hunt graphic, which they've perpetually <laughs> been in for about five, six years. They obviously made the playoffs and lost that game against the Jaguars when they had Tyrod Taylor and Nathan Peterman, but they didn't clinch out to the last game of the season. They finally get to clinch in the middle of the season. They've got 10 wins. They're not necessarily in the hunt for the AFC East championship, but it's a nice season for them. Danny Heifetz, what did you think about this game? 
Shredavious White is amazing. Yep. And the whole defense is fantastic. It's like this no-name collection of people that are just, I mean, Except none of them are particularly... Well, let's, it's kind of a chicken and egg thing, right? They, they are no names because the national media doesn't pay that much attention to Buffalo. These are some really good players. They're great, but they're not famous. That's the thing. Right. Davis White's the most famous player on a defense. Like it's not that famous, and he should he should be more famous. But it's it, I love that. It, it just it's a very Buffalo team. That's kind of a cop out to say, but I mean, even Josh Allen is like the this guy that was just kind of like lambasted in the draft process, and now he's Buffalo's, and now he's like very much like there. Like and John Brown is someone this free agent who bounced around who's just not like really wanted by any teams. Bounced around, even the Bills were kind of like. We didn't really know what we were getting. We didn't really know why he had three employers in three years. And now he's just like right. fantastic and a part of that team. Like it's just, it's a ra- very ragtag group that is all like gelled perfectly. Sure. Yeah. So the Bills, as we talked about on Thursday's pod, the Bills, the Steelers, a lot of these teams are just turning me into a traditional football guy because I've spent a lot of time in Buffalo and I've spent time with Sean McDermott. They do the analytics thing. I've talked to Brandon Bean about it. I've talked to Sean McDermott about it. But they believe in culture so much. One of the interesting things I thought that we talked about in August was they did a 360 review process. And essentially, they wanted feedback. They weren't just going to give the players feedback. They were going to get feedback of the coaches and the head coach from the players and assistant coach would give feedback to the head coach and, and, and all the way around through this review process. Sean McDermott got, Sean McDermott got it from his brother who works for the MLS. And, and it's, it's just a really interesting thing there. And what they really cared about was understanding the culture that they had in there and bringing in the right guys. And again, this is someone who is, I'm very analytics based. I, I like what I can measure and all that stuff. And the Bills, although they they do have one foot in that, they believe in veteran presence. They believe in bringing in Frank Gore to teach Devin Singletary things. They believe in this veteran thing. You know, one of the things that they took from New England, quite frankly, everyone talks about the Patriot way and how guys like Matt Patricia can't steal it or guys like Bob Quinn can't steal it or some of these guys, you know, Eric Mangini couldn't replicate it. All these guys have come from New England. Well, one of the things that the Bills did, even though they don't have any expatriates employees, is they learn the right lessons for them. One of them is that they really like veteran players and they think that there's a, a, a inefficiency as far as bringing in a guy who's an older veteran, a mid-level veteran for six, seven million dollars a year when the cap keeps rising and he knows how to play. And he's not going to cost you a ton of money relative to the salary cap. And all of a sudden, you've got Cole Beasley. All of a sudden, you've got John Brown. All of a sudden, you've got Frank Gore or any of these guys. You know, Mitch Morse is another one of those guys. Um, they, they needed to shore up their offensive line. They have, they've had some injuries, so it hasn't all been perfect as far as that th- those guys go. But that was the plan. And so I think the way they've built this team, the culture, all of the things that they were talking about in August and September when I talked to them, it's all come together. And I couldn't be more impressed. I also just love their their skill players. Like even Devin Singletary, yep. like Frank Gore is like this white walker. Like I think he's there half because Buffalo's like cold enough that he can just stay, you know, stay in one piece for the whole season. But Devin Singletary behind him has just been he's like a, a shot in the arm every time watching. He's so much fun. He just darts and dashes and he's amazing. Yeah. Um, I totally agree with you. Is there anything that you've seen from this game? Now, obviously, listen, the Steelers were when you consider what happened to the quarterback situation and some of the other stuff and, and the fact that we dunked all over the Minka Fitzpatrick trade and we were proven wrong, the Steelers were in and of themselves overachievers. So let's not act like they just beat the Baltimore Ravens here. But this is a really nice win for them. Do you think that the Buffalo Bills can make any noise at all in the playoffs? 
Yeah, of course. They almost beat the Patriots when the Patriots were playing their best football of the year. And Josh yeah. Allen threw three or so picks in that game, and they still almost won the game. So absolutely. I mean, the Bills can beat anybody. It comes down to, I mean, they can't beat anybody, but it comes down to limiting limiting mistakes from Josh Allen. And then beyond that, man, I just think their defense is really talented and well-coached. Sean McDermott is an awesome coach. They took away the middle of the field for Duck Hodges today. As you said, uh, Tredavious White was awesome. You know, all season, his catch rate's been around 40%, which is about what the top cornerbacks in the league are at, okay? And and I, I just think that this is so cool to get to see. I, people like us have known Tredavious White's been a, elite for a long time since basically he had that incredible rookie year. And to see him on Sunday Night Football get two interceptions, be the basically the face of that team tonight. I mean that that was just really cool to see. And that that's why I'm just again I think that the plan that Brandon Bean and Sean McDermott had is all coming to fruition. And I, I just could not be more impressed with this team. It, to to be to have Sean McDermott go two playoff trips in three years when seven head coaches before him had zero playoff uh, trips. That That's just Sean McDermott is a good coach. But a huge note for you in the culture thing. The Bills are also one of the healthier teams in the league. The only real sure. starter they're missing time from is uh, Ty Niseki, their right tackle. And even he mm-hmm. might be able to come back for the playoffs. That's also just a really underrated part is it's one thing to bring on all those guys. It's another like most of them are pretty healthy. Yeah. I mean, especially when you consider someone like, I mean, Frank Gore, who is 50 years old. And obviously I spent a lot of time with Frank Gore, learning about Frank Gore in the preseason when I wrote that big profile of him. And one of the things that they were doing was, I mean, it was essentially load management. They were telling him to take days off. They were telling him to take OTAs off in the offseason in June. He didn't want to do that stuff because, he, again, he wants to just practice in, in June as hard as he plays in December. But they had a plan. They they understand Brandon Bean, Sean McDermott, all these guys, they understand sports science. They understand load management. We, we talked a lot about that in our conversations um, leading up to the season, just how cognizant they were of of how modern tracking technology works and how they're able to to use that so again everything that that they've attempted to do they've done it's it's one of the best team building jobs in a, in a number of years all right next stock up the houston texans nice win the ryan Tannehill hype train is it's slowing down we're not canceling it, it had, he had almost 300 yards today more yards than deshaun watson just a little different they don't have DeAndre Hopkins in Tennessee. That seemed to be the difference. Uh, Texans win 24-21. What do you think I see out of this game, Danny? Well, first of all, uh, the Titans stopped doubling DeAndre Hopkins in the fourth yeah. quarter, and then he had like Bad four idea. catches for like 98 yards like immediately. Uh, that's tough, but I think it also shows why they're tough to play because when they receiving core is healthy, obviously Will Fuller is like really tough, and Kenny Stills missed some time. But Stills catches two touchdowns earlier in the game, and the Titans are like, damn it, all right. We're trying to do the Kenny Stills one-on-one thing. That's not working. So then they can't just double Nuck Hopkins every play. And then what happens? He catches 98 yards and four catches in the fourth quarter and kind of puts the game away along with Carlos Hyde. And I think Carlos Hyde uh, went across 1,000 yards for the first time in his career this year, and they got him for, like, nothing from the Chiefs. So the Texans have, like, I mean, Bill O'Brien talked about people who were, like, were kind of getting clowned for just giving away the farm. And this team looks pretty good. I think their defense is really suspect. Like the Titans had 21 in this, but they really almost had like 31. So I think the Texans defense is actually the thing that I'm kind of worried about because otherwise I love this team. Yeah. I mean, this is, I, I really like the 2019 Houston Texans. I get, I think a lot of the, problems that we've discussed in this podcast are the fact that long-term you just gave up two first round picks for Laramie Tunsil. 
you have to pay him at some point, a lot of money. He has a ton of leverage. But from a 2019 perspective, we always knew this team was going to be good. So essentially now the Texans have, according to 538, an 88% chance to win the division. So for that's basically that's basically it. Um, the Titans still have 50% chance of making the playoffs. And, and I, I still really believe in their coaching staff. I still really believe, quite frankly, in the 2019 version of Ryan Tannehill. I don't know about the 2020 version, but let's, let's put that up, uh, aside. I, mean, I just think that you see the difference when you have superstars today. I mean, DeAndre Hopkins, you said, took over the fourth quarter. I was looking at the probability chart on ESPN just to mess around, just to to kind of view a different angle of this game. And every time there was a huge uptick in the fourth quarter for win probability for the Texans, it was because they got the ball to DeAndre Hopkins. I mean, this is a guy who wins games. Deshaun Watson and DeAndre Hopkins are one of the, if not the biggest dynamic duo in the league as far as quarterback and, and receiver go right now. And and there's not many you got not many duos you take over them right now. And and you just you just see the difference. The Titans, listen, the Titans have AJ Brown. They've got a lot of good skill position guys that I've been impressed with. I think it's a good team building job from John Robinson. They just don't have Deshaun Watson, DeAndre Hopkins and in the fourth quarter, that kind of thing shows up. Well AJ Brown went from the buff guy standing next to DK Metcalf and all the photos mm-hmm. to now the best rookie receiver in the NFL because he's almost as big as DK Metcalf, but also can just do like these quick cuts in a way that most big guys just cannot do. It's like twitchy and it's it's incredible. He, I mean, yeah, I, I was doing a deep dive on yards after catch for an, a different player this week. And, and you noticed how how dominant A.J. Brown is when he has the ball in his hands. And I think that that's, that's been a nice revelation. But we are talking about A.J. Brown with Danny Kelly. So let's hold that thought and let's get to the other side of the ball. It's the New England Patriots and it's Stephon Gilmore's Defensive Player of the Year campaign. He has two more interceptions today. You know, if they're going to give, I think there was some talk about Jamie Collins maybe in October or November, but if they're going to give Defensive Player of the Year, neither of us have votes, to a player who's the face of the Patriots defense, it kind of stands out. It's got to be Gilmore at this point. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Mays said after they beat the Cowboys and he shut down Amore Cooper that he probably won it that week. I think it was this week because it was just such a standout game. He had like two picks and the pick six. And then he said after that, he should have had four and that he knew all the routes and they should change the route combos. But look, if Belichick games the system like Belichick's famous for letting all the free agents walk, Trey Flowers mm-hmm. is just the latest. I mean, you can talk about that for at for endless amount of time. The only two people that Bill Belichick has ever been like, yeah, no, I'm blowing a comp pick for these guys is Darrell Revis and mm-hmm. then Stephen Gil- uh, Stephon Gilmore. Like, those are the two guys. And that should tell you how important he is to this scheme. And he's lining up across the number one almost every week. And he's shutting them down every week. And I mean, <laughs> I, my favorite stat for Gilmore this year, he has two, his six catches for 126 yards and two touchdowns. And Nikhil Harry, who is the Pats' yeah. first-round pick, has seven catches for 55 yards and two touchdowns. I think Stephon Gilmore could be the Troy Brown of this team. Yeah, Sam Monson made that point, too, that Stephon Gilmore might be a better receiver than some of the Patriots receivers right now. I think there's there might be something <laughs> to that, but I also know that Bill Belichick values a, a shutdown cornerback enough to not try. Tyler Boyd said uh, of Stephon Gilmore, it was just one-on-one. I won the majority of the matchups. That's a tough look for my guy. That's a that's not that's not what you want out of Tower Boyd. I will say this: you know, you mentioned that Stephon Gilmore said he they he knew the routes and all that stuff. Uh, if you're a Patriots player, do you just take a week off from saying you know what's going to happen after the advanced scouting? Yeah, Ruh. that was a huge slip up. Maybe he shouldn't be. He's not even the Pats yeah, exactly. MVP because you can't. Exactly. Tell well, no, them no, to he didn't. Them. They took the tape, so so he, he you know <laughs> they had to they had to find out via other means. What did very quickly? What did you think of the 
of the Gla- Jay Glazer awesome scoop uh, of the video. And I think that I, one of our Ringer colleagues said it was as uh, interesting and pointless as possible. I think the advanced scouts, like they had to take footage because they had to actually confirm the Bengals were actually going to play Andy Dalton in this game. Yeah, exactly. No, and then I, Stephon well, was like, holy, like they're really going to do it. When I say interesting and pointless, I want to expand on this. So it was a ama- the actual, the actual thing, the actual conversation between the Bengals security and the Patriots employee was amazing. And I don't know. <laughs> I think the best evidence that Belichick had nothing to do with this is that that guy had no idea what he was doing, right? Like if it was from Bill Belichick, I feel like things would have been run a little more smoother. But I will say this. It, it was it was a bad look, a bad look for the Patriots to have that direct of a sideline shot. But I also think that, I don't know, like if you were actually going to do it, wouldn't you just do it from the stands where nobody would bother you and not the look. press box? This was right, so. First of all, it didn't add anything new. Like it was, it was very much like it was, what am, was, reported, it was an amazing but, video. It was amazing. But having video. the video, it was kind of like this Arrested Development moment mm-hmm. because it was really just like you know the Patriots' aura can kind of take away from the fact that these are still human beings and like this large organization. And it's so clear that it seems to be the actual truth here. Just happens to be an excuse that was actually floated around in the Spygate reporting. And it happens to be layered on top because you're right. Like the the brazenness of this, I think, actually is the most exonerating thing. But there is like a very like Joe Bluth quality to this where Joe accidentally does something that is like incriminating to the entire company. Yeah, I mean, it was it was amazing to see that. And when I say pointless, I don't mean the video is pointless. I mean that the actual like whatever they were doing on on that video there was would probably be pointless to an NFL team. And if you're going to cheat, I feel like there are be- significantly better ways to do it. I listen. Lost I, in I, this is that they used to do the defensive signals by hand when they did the original Spygate. Right. Now it's over radio. Right. There's a lot of differences. <laughs> I, I will say this. This was a terrible look for the Patriots, but I don't think it makes them look like systematic cheaters. It makes them look like they had a very, very stupid employee. And that actually goes against, if you were to say the Patriots got caught cheating or the Patriots had a a stupid employee and I had to guess which one was more likely, I would actually say the Patriots got caught cheating. But in this case, I believe it to be the Patriots just had a stupid employee. I don't, I feel bad even pitting it out of the guy because I don't understand. I I don't, listen, man, whatever, whatever he was doing was not good. Like, I don't mean, I just mean whatever, however he was going about his job, which was filming the sideline and then freaking out about it and saying, I'll delete the tape. That was, that was a tough one. Incompetence is usually yeah. a better answer than malice. As a, Even with the Patriots, that was, unfortunately. That's what Amy Trask said on Slow News Day. And I, I subscribe to that, that theory. Amy Trask knows a lot about football. She's, you know, been on some Patriots related controversies with the Raiders. And uh, her, her take on this was that you can, whatever can be, can be chalked up with stupidity and not malice is, is usually correct in this, in this particular case, obviously the Patriots have cheated in the past. Okay. Let's get to our next stock up Dallas Cowboys. Brian Curtis said on Thursday show that the Cowboys might have a false hope game where we all get excited or as Danny Kelly said, the, there might be a Rams back situation. And we found out which one 
that was. I saw, I saw this cool stat from David Hellman, and, and I, I agree with him. The Cowboys dominated a game which Amari Cooper, Michael Gallup, and Randall Cobb combined for 22 yards on three catches, and that's important. He pointed that out, and I'm co-signing that because I think we all thought there was a path for the Cowboys to get better. And, and, and you know, listen, Zeke Elliott has looked average for long stretches of the season. He didn't look average today. He looked quite good. And this is a team in a very weird NFC that has has some some life in them, I would say. Well, speaking of incompetence instead of malice, the refs messing up the coin toss in the beginning. Yeah. All that happened was hilarious, but it was actually really funny because it didn't matter at all. And that would be a massive, crazy deal in any game that was even kind of close. And it didn't matter at all because they changed their mind at halftime, but it was already 28 to seven. So it was completely irrelevant. Like the only thing in doubt the whole game was the coin toss. The rest of it was so decisive. It was wild. Like the Rams had three rushing yards at halftime and two were from Jared Goff. And that was after yeah. two weeks where they had been playing so much better. So, I mean, this was their best win since the Eagles in that was like week seven. And that was when mm-hmm. the Eagles had like two turnovers in their first two drives. And now they get to play the Eagles again. So now we've, we're at this full cycle moment where the Jason Garrett roller coaster was as low as it could possibly go last week. And now we're right back They're, They They could blow out the Eagles next week and win the NFC East. And then we're right back to where we're usually be. Yeah, I mean, I think that the one thing I'll say is that every time this team wins, they're another step closer to saving Jarrett, Jason Garrett's job. So that is, it will always be bittersweet when that happens. But again, the NFC East is up for grabs. Beating the Eagles is, an import, is important from a franchise perspective. So I don't think that, you know, I don't think Cowboys fans should be rooting against the Cowboys just to get Jason Garrett out. I think... <laughs> Jerry Jones, despite all his loyalty, will probably get Garrett out if they do anything short of, you know, a close NFC championship loss. So I don't think you need to freak out about that if you're a Cowboy fan right now. I think it's just 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 go along for the ride. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah I mean, this was this was a nice game. I mean, I, I think that the Rams, the Rams, I, I, I can't get a handle on them. I can't. But again, I can't get a handle on anybody this year except the top, top teams. I can get a handle on the freaking Ravens. I understand what they are. But I think that there's a, a big middle in the league this year. The Rams are in it. The Cowboys are in it. And they swing wildly from week to week. And I think that, you know, if you played this game 10 times, uh, I think you go five and five, quite frankly. I disagree with that. I think that the simplest way to look at this game is that when they played in January, the Rams dominated them in the trenches on both sides of the ball. Right. When they played in January in the divisional round, the Rams rushed for like 273 yards. Um, I reported from that game, actually, that the Rams knew what the Dallas defensive line was going to do. So they got 273 yards. That's still, I believe, the most they've had in the year of 2019. And then on the flip side of the ball, the Rams stopped Ezekiel Elliott on fourth and one, fourth and two, like two different times in that game. And they just, the Rams dominated the trenches. And this time around, the Rams line has been getting better for a month, but they got they got wrecked. They got absolutely worked. They had 22 rushing yards in the whole game. And that's after the Rams have been trying to run the ball more. It's not like one of the classic, like, well, they were behind, so they were throwing. McVay has been very conscious about trying to run more. They couldn't do it. And then the Cowboys finally did the thing where, oh, look, they have the most expensive cap space offensive line in the whole league. Also, they paid Ezekiel Elliott. And then this was the game where it was like, oh, this is the Emmett Smith reincarnated Cowboys that they wanted, which is so funny because Jimmy Johnson, Michael Irvin, and Troy Aikman all turned on Jason Garrett last week. And then... The next game is the one where this whole Jerry and Stephen Jones fever dream of they're trying to recreate the mid-90s Cowboys actually happened because they ran it down their, their throats and it was a perfect game. And so they had 264 when, yards or whatever. When I say that the Cowboys and the Rams, if you play this game, 
10 times, they, they would probably split it. I'm not talking about extrapolating what I saw Sunday and saying if this happened 10 times, you know, et cetera. I'm talking about the fact that the Cowboys and the Rams have been so wildly inconsistent. This is a Cowboys team that lost to Mitch Trubisky. This is a Cowboys team that lost on the road to the Jets, who I have no idea what's going on with that franchise. I'm just saying that the Cowboys have laid some real stinkers this year. They are an inconsistent team. It is really hard for me to trust them at all in general. And I feel like the Cowboys are prone to just incredible highs and incredible lows. And when I've talked to people about, about in Dallas about this, about just how amazing it is that when the Cowboys win a game and Zeke Elliott has over 100 yards, everything is completely perfect. And not only that, they're going to win the Super Bowl. And then when they lose to the Jets, it's we have to fire everybody. And and I see both sides of it. And I actually think that Jason Garrett's gotten to a point where even after they dominate a, win like, a game like this, I don't actually think that the Cowboys fans are going to go back into Super Bowl mode. I think it's going to be more like, we'll just wait and see how to do it against Philadelphia. But I think it's, it, it is a really interesting season where they've got so much talent and they should be so much better. And we're give, we, whenever they win, I think we assign to them the values they should have given their talent. And that's why I think that, that when they win a game, everyone gets so excited, even though, what, 12, 13 days ago, they lost to Mitch freaking Trubisky. Look, I, I that was the Trubisky game was tough. I picked the Cowboys to make the Super Bowl this offseason, and I stuck by it midseason, and this game reminded me why. And I do want to point out, even if they, whatever happens, the NFC sucks, blah, blah, blah. Every year there's a division winner that is like unworthy and people makes gets people talking about reseeding. That's the that Cowboys team wins in a playoff game. That team wins a playoff uh, game. Yeah, I mean, maybe. So the Seahawks won that the Beast Quake game when they were seven and nine. The the Panthers were like seven, eight, and one or whatever in 2015. They won a playoff game. The Cowboys get like they're gonna win a playoff game and they're gonna turn the whole thing moot. Yeah, I, I do think it was very funny to see the, the reseeding talk this week. Adam Chapter said it's probably not gonna happen. Or there's never actually been there's been discussion, but no actual serious proposals or anything like that. Um it's it's not gonna happen. And also the league if 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 the argument to the league office is we need we don't need the Cowboys in the playoffs, we're probably gonna lose that argument. Before we move on, let's take a quick break. With two-thirds of guys experiencing noticeable hair loss by age 35, most guys assume losing their hair is inevitable as they age. Some don't care, some shave their head, some embrace hats, but what they don't know is that there are FDA-approved medications designed to stop hair loss and even regrow hair. That's why we're excited to partner with our sponsor, Roman. Roman makes it easy to get safe, FDA-approved hair loss treatment all from your phone or computer. And when you go to GetRoman.com slash RingerNFL, your online visit is free. Consult with a U.S. licensed physician through the secure online platform. No awkward conversations with receptionists or reading bad magazines in the waiting rooms. Once your doctor ensures the treatment will be safe and effective for you, Roman's dedicated pharmacy can ship your medication to you with free two-day shipping and discreet packaging. If you're noticing unwanted hair loss, starting treatment early is key and Roman can help. Today, Roman is giving the Ringer NFL show listeners a free online visit at GetRoman.com slash RingerNFL. That's GetRoman.com slash RingerNFL for a free visit to get started. Go to GetRoman.com slash RingerNFL. 
This holiday season, immerse yourself in all your favorite holiday classics with a new home theater system from Sonos. Enjoy speech enhancement mode, a unique feature that clarifies the sound of the human voice, perfect for when characters whisper or the action intensifies. Turn it on in the Sonos app and never miss a moment of the story. Plus, play carols and more when the TV is off. Hosting family and friends, Sonos works with all your streaming services and control is simple with the app. Apple AirPlay 2 and your voice using Amazon Alexa or Google Assistant. You can also wirelessly connect your speakers to create your perfect sound system. We have the Sonos in our house. It is perfect. It's great for music. It's great for films. It's great for television. It ties the living room together and it will be a perfect gift for anybody in your life. So go to Sonos.com to learn more and complete your holiday shopping. All right, let's get to stock down. The San Francisco 49ers. Yikes. According to the NFL, this is an interesting stat. They're the first team to have 10 wins in a season and also lose more than three games or three games in the final 10 seconds of regulation or overtime <laughs> in 19 years. The 2000 Eagles did that. They finished 11 and five. I don't remember much about the 2000 Eagles, but that's fascinating to me. They, I think, you know, it, losing close games is a lot of times luck. There's been a lot of research on that. But at some point, you can't lose to the damn Atlanta Falcons. The Falcons have been better. They're not the team that would just got the brakes blown off them in September or October. But this is a, a bad loss. What if the Falcons only beat teams that are NFC contenders? Because they just beat the Niners and they already beat the Saints. And maybe it's that they're so broken and a ghost of yeah. losing to the Patriots in the Super Bowl that they're trying to warn all the <laughs> NFC teams ago, that you don't want to lose to this. You don't want to play the Patriots in the Super Bowl. Don't what do does it. that it's say like, about the uh, Seattle Seahawks who beat them already? <laughs> not, not, a, not a contender? Not a contender. Um, well, I, the, the, they're one and one. against. I don't know. Okay. They, they already got so ghosted by the Patriots. The Falcons have now won four of their last five. They've beaten the Panthers, the Saints, the Panthers again. And now the 49ers. Their one loss was to the Buccaneers, who we're just going to throw in that. Even though they are they are worse than any playoff contender, they are so cons- inconsistent that they can they can beat teams on any given day. We've seen that. Are the Falcons okay? Are the current? I think the Falcons. They've got the Jaguars and the Bucks. The rest of the way, the this is a bad loss, but there is a case to be made. The Falcons went out here. Now I'm 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 it's always important to remember like Kyle Shanahan was the coordinator for the Falcons obviously and there's that Super Bowl run mm-hmm. it's always weird oh, when what, you're wait you oh you think that Dan Quinn has figured out Kyle Shanahan well not figured him out but Kyle Shanahan worked for him for like uh, what two or three wait, years yeah, like, that, that's always important I, Kyle Shanahan's a better coach than Dan Quinn yeah but I'm I'm not ruling I don't think that this game is necessarily like oh the 49ers are crashing or the Falcons are better. It's not shocking to me that like oh the Falcons had a really good game plan for the guy that they worked with for like two or three years. Uh, you know, I don't think that that's stunning. I do think what's stunning is everything that it took to happen. There were two reviews at the end. Julio Jones scored a touchdown for the first time in like two months. 10 games, like, yeah. It was like it, the the actual sequence of how this happened was insane. And the fact that the Seattle Seahawks move to the number one seed in the NFC and the Niners are now slated for a wild card is absolutely bonkers. If you watch the final 60 seconds of how this played out, like it was bananas. And especially because, I mean, again, the Seahawks, their point differential is like 12. 
for 20 yeah. and the Niners is like 160. And now the Niners are going to get like the five seed and the Seahawks are, are right now slated to be the one. Yeah. So that, that was going to be my point from this is just how razor thin the NFC West is right now. And that's, you know, I, that, that is when you talk about reseeding or something like that, I'd actually much rather have a, the capability and that actually doesn't matter because of, of obviously the saints are a really good team. But if, if there were two teams in the same division that, both won 12, 13 games and, and were in, in the, the hunt for a bye, I would feel like there'd be more justification for giving one of those teams a bye than doing what we have now, which is, you know, if if there's a... So, obviously, the Seahawks and the Niners both have 11 wins. The Packers are there with 11 wins as well. And then the Saints have 10 wins. And I think that if you're going to have any talk about reseeding, and again, this is all hypothetical, I think you might wouldn't want to think about giving two teams in the same division the buy and just figuring out later. I'm not sure that would work with the home games or whatever, but that's that's not my job. I don't run the the $15 billion industry. Now, I think that we should keep it exactly how it is. It's perfect, and in fact, the NBA should do this too. You want to make the playoffs, you got to win your damn division. I know that the NBA is going to go to like, what? they're just going to do one thing, get rid of the East and the West. No, make it the, the division, and then that way when everyone gets angry, it's great because then you start channeling the anger toward your division and you start hating your opponents, and that's it's great. It's outside I, outside of the Orlando Magic's division, I do I cannot tell you the breakdown of any divisions. Do you have any? But you're you're like a really like a Miami Hurricanes football fan. That's your like. Are is there any what? ACC teams you hate? Yeah, Florida State isn't the best thing about football. Like you hating Florida State isn't that just as fun as like? Loving well, they're Miami? in it. They're not in the division. They're not in but our division. Okay, but you hate Florida State because you have a rivalry. My, like that that is key like that there is love and hate are together you can't have one or the other so the hatred is key and the people who are wanting to be all logical with the ooh math 11's more than 7 no hatred is essential and you have to hate your division it's the the engine Miami, that makes sports run Miami finished in the coastal higher than Florida State did in the Atlantic anyway <laughs> the point I wanted to make was that Kyle Shanahan this week actually talked about how much he got he got better by coaching against that Dan Quinn defense. And that was one of the things that he talked about was the fact that obviously the Dan Quinn defense was proliferating around the league. There's a lot of it. Um, I remember to actually talked to Jed Fish about that last year with the Rams about how um, that Seahawks defense, obviously that's where Dan Quinn comes from, um, that Seahawks defense became so popular and that running offense against it is is usually fruitful. And so I don't think it's a matter of Dan Quinn figuring out Kyle Shanahan because Kyle Shanahan had an even bigger advantage. So I think this is just a weird game. I think that the Seahawks, excuse me, the, the Niners are are a after a huge, huge game in New Orleans. It's just a bit of a letdown. These things happen. It's also important to note Weston Richburg was out for this game and their centers centers are underrated. Now that I'm a huge football culture guy, I now believe in trap games. So it's been <laughs> it's, it's my second week believing in uh, football culture and uh I'll be damned if we didn't run into a trap game. All right. Next. This is yours. Quarterbacks that could have held on to their jobs like Mitch Trubisky, Kyle Allen. We're not going to put Doug Hodges in this because he couldn't hold on to his job if the Steelers got healthy quarterback. But well, I think we he lost just, the backup quarterback job. Too. He lost something tonight. Uh, what did you want to talk about here? Well, so just there, there were a bunch of quarterbacks that I think that there was a, at least a conception that you know, if they played really well down the stretch that they could hold on to their job. I think that was a thing with Kyle Allen, like earlier this year, Mitchell Trubisky, if he played well and Duck Hodges, like I'm not, I'm serious. Like even the backup job, 
none of these guys should return to the I, are we are we is Mason Rudolph getting this job? I just kind of assumed that that was not happening. I don't think any Pittsburgh Steelers like every Steelers fan spent six weeks being like, get Mason Rudolph out of this mm-hmm. out of this team. And then it turned out Mike Tomlin felt the exact same way, but couldn't really say it because of how the Cleveland Browns Steelers game ended. And he had to wait till like the next game in the middle of it to bench Mason Rudolph because it would look like he wasn't really standing behind him. And then Hodges comes in and is so like marginally better than Mason Rudolph that Steelers fans convinced themselves he's fine. The reality is yeah, he's thrown over 152 yards once and he hasn't thrown a multi-touchdown game. And the Steelers offense is... Quite honestly, it's one of the two or three worst in the whole league. They have a lot of great window dressing because Deontay Johnson mm-hmm. is incredible. James Washington's so much better. James Conner's awesome. They have a lot of great players. But Mike Tomlin said this in early October. He said a, a really good way to help a young, which was his code word for bad quarterback, is to yeah. turn a 70-play game to a 50-play game. The Steelers mm-hmm. are the like play the ugliest football in the whole league on purpose because their entire offense is, please don't screw this up. And we can't... The Bills kind of lost because the Steelers, I mean, sorry, the Bills kind of won because Duck Hodges kept screwing up. And I know he's an undrafted free agent. And I know that's not shocking, but the same with the Panthers and Kyle Allen. I don't totally understand why there's the Panthers are just automatically going to trade Cam Newton because Kyle Allen really good for an undrafted free agent quarterback, but he's an undrafted free agent quarterback and people shouldn't be shocked when he plays like it, like bless his heart. But he had two picks in in back-to-back plays. Do we just get a bless his heart out of you, Danny Heifetz? Bless Kyle Allen's heart, man. Okay. Like it's like I, I'm sorry. I'm with but. you on the Cam Newton point. I thought that when you start looking around for destinations for both team and player, the the best situation for him is Carolina. Yes, and and the best te- quarterback that Carolina is going to get is Cam Newton. Now, it if doesn't if make any something sense. crazy happens in the quarterback market and cu- someone really good shakes free or if some really good quarterback drops down in the draft i can see where you'd want to move on or just keep cam newton who cares i mean is it what 22 next year just keep so it's, him. it's who 22 cares? it's 22 million i think 3 million it's dead and they would save 19 19 million you know what sounds mm-hmm. a lot for me that would be great but like that's the cap next year is going to be 199 million dollars anyway so we're talking about almost exactly 10% which is nothing for Cam Newton and what I don't understand is I think Ian Rappaport reported for NFL Network that they wanted a draft haul. Well, if Cam Newton's healthy and you're going to get all these picks, you might as well keep him. And if he's not healthy, you're not going to get that many picks. So you might as well keep him and like see. So look, there's always information that we don't know. And that it's probably a better idea to kind of assume like, all right, what are we missing here? And what could we, we be missing that would make them want to get rid of Cam? But I don't really understand what the purpose is of dealing him when they, this, as, as you've said multiple times, the second he's gone, they need a quarterback. So I feel that way about Kyle Allen. I, the Steelers have no plan post Ben Roethlisberger, which is what we learned this year. Yeah. Zero plan. The idea that Rudolph or Hodges is, is anything, I mean, Ben's 37, 38 next year. They have to start from scratch on a plan B there, as do the Giants, quite honestly. I think the Giants should just draft a quarterback and wipe the slate clean with Daniel Jones. And then the the same deal, honestly, with Trubisky. The Bears have to the, the Bears need to know by now. Like him falling short of the goal line today at the end zone was like the perfect metaphor for this core team where they have put everything in place and they got so close, and then Trubisky's they just couldn't get it done. Yeah, I'm with you. The whole argument, I guess, is a new fresh start with new coach, whatever. But I'd much rather just take that fresh start and have Cam Newton. You can still have a fresh start with Cam Newton. Happens all the time. 
All right. Uh, you want to talk about Trubisky? <laughs> Big Mitch? Uh, well, he's on your list here. Dude, he's not good, man. The Bears got to get rid of this we've, guy. We've talked about this. <laughs> yes. So I, I just, I, I think that he comes back, but they have competition for him, right? I mean, that seems like yeah, the most to. likely thing. I they, don't know. They I mean, absolutely that's, have to. I've, I, I kind of want to. The, the, the real thing fun. I want to mention that I didn't mention the 49ers is that George Kittle pancaked a poor defensive back on the Falcons. And then like it was so crazy dominant that he actually had so much momentum that he pancaked him and then rolled. And then the camera pans in on him as he rolls and he's laughing maniacally like the Joker, which is like his thing. He got a Joker tattoo like the morning before his wedding or the day before his wedding. Mm-hmm. And he's like the Joker on the field. And he actually looks like the Joker in this video. Yeah, I feel like you might we might have some more words about George Kittle coming to the ringer.com fairly soon. Wow. Accidental promo. Accidental promo. Okay, Danny Heifetz, thank you so much for joining us. We have another Danny coming on, Danny Kelly. He's got his big take of the day. Danny Heifetz, appreciate you coming on. <laughs> thank you, Kevin. Love Danny Kelly. Okay, Danny Kelly, the ringer's dark night. He's here. He's got, we were going to say one big take. First of all, that's a blatant ripoff of SCP's one big thing. And it's also, the other problem with it is we actually have two things to talk about. So we're just over two on this. The first thing I want to talk about, Danny, Kyler Murray, Cliff Kingsbury, they cancel the Browns. The Browns, I mean, that's just another, I actually don't want to, if we start talking about the Browns, we're never going to stop. So let's talk about Kyler Murray and Cliff Kingsbury and what they were able to do today and this season. Yeah, so they snapped a six-game losing streak, I believe. Yeah. So obviously, you know, the season hasn't gone, you know, perfectly or anything. But I, I would let's say not that get, let's a, not get bogged down with details about <laughs> them losing six straight games. I would say that I'm a Cliff believer and a Kyler yeah. believer. Where do you, where do you land on both of those kind of areas? <sighs> I've always been a Kyler believer. I believed yeah. that there were just a lot of things that were special about him. That, I mean, there, you don't go first overall with that kind of uh, stature um, when you're under six feet without there being a lot of special qualities. And also the ability to right. avoid contact, which I think is really, really important. The ability to stay healthy as he has when you're that uh, when you're not six foot five is is quite <laughs> amazing. And I think yeah. that he's I, that I always knew he was going to be a really, really good player. Cliff much less optimistic on and he has yeah. he has exceeded my expectations again it's not like we're not dealing with 13 and 3 here but as far as offensive adjustments as far as him being able to take what he had and adjusting it week to week i mean he really has changed his offense i mean from week 1 into week 7 week 8 and now up to now it, it, this is he is changing the offense every single week and i think that a lot of times college coaches you know we've talked about chip kelly a million times a lot of times college coaches come with a couple good ideas they never adjust it i think cliff Car- cliff kingsbury is making the necessary adjustments to to get his offense where he needs to be. And that has impressed me because I kind of yeah. the first season, they don't have a ton of talent everywhere. They certainly have a lot more talent than they gave Steve Wilkes last year. But it's, you know, this is not this just is not the the Rams here. Okay. This is yep. a team that that is, you know, there's not a lot of veterans. They're they are in a rebuilding state. And so you can't really look at wins and losses necessarily. It'd be nice if they had eleven wins, but I'm looking more in the details and I've been impressed with the with what Cliff Kingsbury's been able to do. I think that your point about him adapting as the season goes on has been really good. And it's good contrast to 
their opponent this week, you know, with the Brown in, in the Browns who have not really been able to adjust at all oh, throughout God. the season with the struggles, you know, especially on offense. It just it doesn't seem like they've done made the necessary adjustments and changes to kind of fix what ha- what was happening there. And that might be an indictment upon Freddie Kitchens. We'll see. It sounds like they might keep him for for the long term, but um when it comes to Cliff, yeah, I think for sure. You know what he's done has impressed me, and the, and it's all about context because the Cardinals were legitimately the worst offense in the NFL last year, like by a long shot, and that was with a first round quarterback, you know, starting for a majority of the season. And so, you know, the, there's some ability to compare what they did to last year. That their their off their offensive talent this year is is not good. Their offensive line has struggled. Their wide receiver core is a work in progress, and that's putting it really kindly. I mean, obviously Larry Fitz is good, but he's getting up there in age. And then the rest of the group is very young and unproven. The running backs group was supposed to be buoyed by David Johnson, but he's just completely fallen off the map. And so what he, what, what Kyler and what Cliff have been able to do, you know, offensively, their passing game has been exciting. You know, they, they have tempo spacing, um, you know, all the, all the air raid fundamentals. But then, like you said, they, they do other things to adapt and kind of like get the most out of their guys. Uh, but their run game has been extremely, extremely good too in terms of efficiency. It's the number two, I believe it was the number two offense or run game in DVOA coming into the season. Then we saw Kenyon mm-hmm. Drake just go off for four touchdowns today. And they just dominated on the ground. They basically were able to dictate what they wanted to do. And, you know, from a from a fan of football and schematics, it's just fun to watch because, you know, every run that they do has a couple of elements that just make it harder on a defense. You know, they spread the ball out. If they're not spreading the ball out, they're doing pre-snap motion or post-snap, you know, orbit motion. They're doing option stuff with Kyler. Kyler adds to the run game. Yeah, I think he had like 58 yards in, um, on the ground today. And so, yeah, I mean, I just think overall there's a lot to be done with this team still, clearly. Um, but I'm cautiously optimistic about where about the direction that they're going. I think if they get more talent, um, that they could be a good team. They could be a, t- a team to contend in that in that division. So you talked about the team last year in Arizona. That defensive coordinator for the Browns, Mr. Steve Wilkes. That's worth that's worth noting. Um, (laughs) so yeah, I mean, this is, this is an impressive team. Um, and I think that, I think they're, I don't know if they're a year away. I mean, when you have a young quarterback like that, who's dynamic and good, you can sort of accelerate things quickly if he takes a a bigger step than we anticipate. But yeah, I mean, this is, this is a good team. Um, we want to talk about the, your second take on your one take is the rookie receivers. You've you focused on them from a fantasy perspective. We talked about AJ, uh, uh, Danny Heifetz and I talked about A.J. Brown a little bit. Um, where are we on the, these rookie receivers? We like them a lot more than we thought. This is not supposed to be a beast of a class, and yet we found some gems. Yeah, I mean, I, we came into the season, and I think that most people, the general impression of the, season, of, of the class from a draft perspective was that it was deep, but not necessarily very good at the top. And they have absolutely outperformed expectations by a lot. Um, you know, Brown is, he legitimately looks like he's going to be a superstar, like Andre Johnson vibes, just beasting through people yeah. constantly. If he starts getting like solid volume, he is just going to dominate. Um, Terry McLaurin, who I believe was a third rounder, is just looks what, really, what, really solid. When we say Andre Johnson vibes, we mean the Texans version and not the weird titans version from like 20 <laughs> 20 was that 2016 that was wild 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, like peak Andre Giant. That's yeah. that's obviously a really, really no, you know, of course high comparison, and he's got a long way to go to get there. But that's just like body. Type I have and- I have no memories of Andre Johnson on the Colts in 2015. He played on <laughs> he played on three AFC South teams. Where were the Jaguars in 2017? I don't wow. know, man. I don't. I don't remember. I don't think I remember anything from that Colts era either. I only did he, remember. Did he even play? I, he 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 did. He played all 16 games and had 500 yards. <laughs> he. Uh, I only remember reason I remember the Titans thing is I put an interview request uh, for him in 2016. I, that's the only reason I remember that. that. Um, Terry McLaurin, you were saying. Yeah, Terry McLaurin has been extremely extremely good, and it, it's kind of interesting because he totally blew up the Senior Bowl. And for some reason, you know, maybe it was just his numbers at Ohio State or whatever. People were still kind of overlooking him. He's been amazing. Uh, DK Metcalf, Darius Slayton looks like a future star for the Giants. Devo Samuel is just blowing it up. And then you have a couple of guys, Marquise Brown, Michael Hardman, and Deontay Johnson, who have all been very promising, you know, in, in smaller roles for their teams. And so I think it's just been very fun to watch this rookie class just break out in the second half of the season. And for a for a rookie class that wasn't generally regarded that highly, it kind of makes me think like what it's, it's fun to think about what this 2020 class is going to do because they're supposed to be, I think I saw Daniel Jeremiah say it was like the best class he'd seen ever maybe. And, and so like, this is just going to be, you know, not just a lot of fun watching these guys, but it makes me really look forward to kind of seeing what this next class does too. I picked Hardman to an offensive rookie of the year. And that's not he had five he's five hundred yards. It's pretty solid and six. I thought he was gonna get more play playing time. Yeah. I mean, and that whole Chiefs offense has been really hit or miss in terms of all the injuries that they've had. And it, you know, obviously the the total numbers have fallen off. I think that's that's not a terrible choice. I you know, I think the biggest surprise is probably Darius Slayton, who's just come out of kind of nowhere. I think he was a fifth rounder and he's come out of nowhere and Scored eight touchdowns for a, a pretty bad team. So is that's Kyler concerned. Murray the offensive rookie of the year or Josh Jacobs? I Ooh. picked Kyler. Depend. I guess it depends on Josh Jacobs' health the last two weeks of the year. He's got the shoulder. I don't know how they judge that, if it's just pure stats or if it's like partly it, Let me kind stop of... you right there. It's pure stats. <laughs> it's pure stats and voters not, just being like, this thing guy seems good. Um, it's not <laughs> going to be from hard. From a pure, though. impressive standpoint, Kyler, I think, would win out. But Daniel, I'm looking at the odds right now. Daniel Jacobs and Dwayne Haskins are plus 10,000. Don't know about those. Daniel Jones? Daniel Jones or Dwayne Haskins. Yeah. Tough Remember one. Daniel Jones mania started out real strong. But, it was, uh, that's it definitely was amazing. All right. Let me, let's, <laughs> let's, uh, let's leave on this. Who will be the best career of any rookie receiver that you've viewed so far? Danny Kelly. Oh, man. I think I have to go with A.J. Brown just mm. because he has done what he's done with very low volume. And if he gets into an offense where he's getting the ball much more frequently at a higher rate, I think he could just dominate. All um, right. Uh, yeah, that's why I, I think I'd have to go with that. Danny Kelly, thank you so much for joining us. What do you have on the ringer.com this week? Uh, get, putting my first mock draft of the draft oh my God. season up this I, week. Are we so. keeping that a secret or can you tell us who's... Uh, I guess Joe Burrow's number one. Yeah, that's probably, that's pretty much locked in at this point. Um, and then, yeah, Chase Young, number two. Oh, yeah. And from there, we kind of got to figure things out. Uh-oh. Here we go. All right. <laughs> Assuming Chase Young declares, it's kind of sounding like maybe he's yeah, going to okay. play coy for a while. Yeah. He, he'll okay. <laughs> All right. 
Danny Kelly, thank you so much for joining us. Read his mock draft on the ringer.com. <laughs> Thanks, Kevin. Thank you to Danny Heifetz. Thank you to Danny Kelly. We'll be back on Thursday with another edition of the Ringer NFL Show on the Ringer Podcast Network. This holiday season, immerse yourself in all your favorite holiday classics with a new home theater system from Sonos. We have Sonos in our living room. It is perfect for action movies. It is perfect for all the dumb shows that I like watching, especially the ones with great soundtracks. Just crank that one up or just listen to music when you're having a dinner party. It's really cool and it'll be a perfect gift. It's awesome. So go to Sonos.com to learn more and complete your holiday shopping.